it is true that because there are not enough women in the space, there's just not enough demand for these projects, and which is why it's so important to onboard more women into Web3 because we can really make an impact on where that money goes to and we can really change that narrative. A bad bitch takes charge of her body, her boundaries, and her bank account. (laughs) Welcome back, bad bitches. You are here at the Bad Bitch Empire. And today I'm here with Lily Wu. She is the founder of Wow Pixies NFT, the first social DAO to invest in women and diversity-led NFT and Web3 projects. She's a huge advocate for women in the Web3 space and passionate about bringing diversity into tech. As someone at the intersection of art and tech, she's an ex-seven-figure education entrepreneur startup partner lead at Stripe and Illustrator. And today we'll be talking about how Lily has been able to bring her creativity and artistry into her career in tech, how she took the leap into the crypto and Web3 space to build her first NFT project focused on women, and how women like yourselves can leverage the power of Web3 to build your empire. Lily, welcome to the Bad Bitch Empire. Thank you so much, Lisa, for having me. So you are tuning in all the way from Singapore, and I would love for you to just tell us about how you grew up and about your background as the daughter of artists and how you've been able to leverage that into tech. Yeah, so I grew up, as you said, with Um, parents who are both artists. So they were kind of the black sheep of their family. Um, They owned galleries in Sydney where I grew up. Um, But I think during the financial crisis, um, when I was around 16, my parents um, really struggled with kind of maintaining and floating um, their business. They had to shut it down um, and, you know, really had to take a back seat in with their art. Um, And growing up with that, I just saw like, you know, it it was great that they were following their passion, but I ultimately felt like it was never a super sustaining um, or a sustainable kind of career option because, you know, especially through the really, really tough times, sometimes they'll make like $100 a week or something. And um, it was just really like a struggle to see them go through that. So I always thought that I was going to be maybe like a graphic designer or a animator. I just ha- didn't really know what the options um, for me were. And so during the financial crisis, um, they went back to China for three months and they left me with a hundred dollars. Um, and that's kind of when I discovered entrepreneurship for the first time. I'd never even considered business before. I hadn't ever heard of the word entrepreneurship in my life. Um, and it was because I was running out of money and I really needed to, I was using up all my red pocket money and I, I thought, okay, um, I feel really bad asking my parents for more. So I'm just going to go and, you know, apply for McDonald's or KFC and, and see if I can get a job. And I don't know, for some reason, I just couldn't get a job. Um, at and McDonald's other- or KFC? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I want to hire an underpaid 16 year old 
I don't understand. Um, I think I just didn't really like, maybe I was a bit dumb, but um, I think my, my resume was like too academic. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> definitely, I didn't know what people were looking for. I just wrote <laughs> anything that would fit on a piece of paper and handed it. No um, real world burger flipping skills. <laughs> no real world burger flipping skills. Exactly. Um, so lo and behold, didn't get it. Um, and, but at the time I was really obsessed, um, with, so I was like really into hip hop. I was really obsessed with these, um, kind of like Adidas Jeremy Scott collab shoes where they have wings on them. And in Australia, they retail for $300. Um, and at the time, like I know me and my, all my friends were really obsessed with them. Um, they kind of like the Yeezys of the day. And um, I had just met this girl. She was from the States and her parents owned an Adidas outlet. Um, and I basically was like, hey, how much are these out of season um, shoes that, you know, like that you can wholesale for? Do you want to take a guess how much it was for one pair? Uh, I mean, I have no idea. no so it was so because it retailed in australia for 300 actually it cost only 50 dollars us um at a wholesaler and 40 australian dollars at the time so usd was actually lower than australian dollars not the case now but i was like okay how much is it to to ship a pair to australia and she was like it's also the same amount because Australia is the middle of nowhere. So it's going to take a lot to, to ship there. Um, but she said, if you can get me an order of 20, then we can kind of bulk ship it and it will be a flat fee. So I was really excited. I went to all my friends and said, hey, it's $40. want to get it with me. If we can bulk buy it, um, you know, the shipping is, is free. And basically all my friends said, there's no freaking way that this can be real because how is this cheap? I will tell them. Like this is wholesale, you know, retail markup is like 70%. Australian dollars higher than American. We're always a season behind as well. Um, but they were just like, I don't know. It seems a bit sketchy that it's so cheap. I was like, wow, that's really interesting that the problem is that the price is too low. Um, and so I went to another group of friends, this time all guys from private schools, and basically said the same thing, except I said $80 because at least it would cover my shipping if I didn't get an order of 20 And this one guy told me, you know, if you can get like, um, I can get you an order of 20, but what do I get out of it? I was like, okay, interesting. Um, So I told him, if you can get me an order of 20 by the end of this week, then you can charge whatever you want, as long as it's more than $80. So if you want to charge $250 and make a $170 cut, then, you know, go ahead. And you just like see his eyes light up because you know, that that's a lot of money. Um, and so I went to another nine friends, said the same thing, all dudes from private schools. Um, I realized that was my market because they were very good at selling and um, said the same thing. Get me an order of 20 by the end of this week and you can charge up to like, as long as it's more than $80, go ahead, um, go nuts. And you can take that, that cut. I'll take a $40 cut. You take the the bigger cut. And so my MVP, my minimum viable product was basically one Excel sheet, one um, 
document and Word doc and then one Facebook page. And so by the end of that week, I had 10 people give me 20 orders each and each order I made $40 profit. Um, so at the end of that week, I had made 8,000 in profit. Wow. And so that was my, like my business. I had, and, and because I had no money to pay for it, I made everybody pay me a $40 bond in cash first so that I could pay for the shoes. And then when the shoes came, they would give me the rest of the money. So that was kind of like my first foray into business. And by the time a year and a half later, when I had graduated high school, I had profited around half a million dollars um, with no, I didn't know what a business plan was. I did everything in reverse. I didn't even incorporate or like even, you know, create a, a business number um, until six months in. I was like, oh, maybe there are some tax issues. <laughs> um, maybe I should, you know, have a business name. Um, maybe I should make a website. Like it was all very much like, um, I, I would say it was almost like, almost like network marketing. <laughs> yeah. But, that's, I mean, that's really interesting that like the first thing you thought of was like, I'm not going to go like try and sell all this myself. Immediately yeah. you tapped into these other sellers and you were like looking for the best people to do it. And you found this market of, of guys. So it's like, where do you think that instinct even came from? Because I know that sometimes like a lot of women have this challenge where we feel like we have to do everything ourselves. You know, we mm. have to be the ones to, to go execute. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, I guess I've always kind of thought like, what is the least amount of effort that can have the most amount of return and most amount of impact? And that's kind of how I deal with kind of every business, everything that I've, um, I've kind of thought about. And I guess it comes from um, really seeing that if I can leverage the skills of this person, they can do it 10 times better than me. And, and, and I think a lot of people have asked me like, also, why did you not take a bigger cut? Um, and I just felt like, well, if this person is willing to work harder, if I give them a much bigger cut, a much bigger potential to make more, then, you know, I can go wider because I don't have the network to sell everything myself, but they can take a much deeper cut. So we all win in the end and we all make a ton of money. So I think that was just like kind of what was um, made sense to me at yeah. the time. I yeah. mean, that's even like a really interesting, just win-win instinct that you have right away, even when you're really young, which was that, uh, which I think is sometimes a mistake that startup founders make where they're trying to hoard ownership and mm. they're afraid to give it away. But to your point, it's like, I mean, 50% of nothing is still nothing. Exactly. Right? So you want to incentivize people to, to feel that they have ownership in it so that they're incentivized to, to make everyone money. Exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think that that's a really powerful thing, like being able to incentivize others um, to create a much bigger impact than you could have done by yourself. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. um, so think, yeah. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. The, and the other thing, like I would just note, because one of the core values of the Bad Bitch Empire is action. And so I think it's really cool that what you did was to your point, like you just, you just started 
and you had an Excel sheet, you didn't have a website, you didn't have a bank account. Like, I mean, you didn't really have anything set up, but then you took action and things just started falling into place rather than what sometimes where people get stuck is they they try to plan everything out perfectly and then they just never launch because yeah. they they're afraid that it's not perfect. Yeah. And I actually think um in this kind of that this particular point art has really helped me in this area. Mm-hmm. I I think because ever since I was little I've done this style of art which is like line drawing and I draw using a um a marker and I don't use pencil. I don't use eraser. And it's kind of like this very detailed architectural kind of drawing. And um, it's like very, very, very detailed. But I kind of just, you just kind of have to start somewhere on the page. Um, and I think that that has built a habit since I was young to just like look at a blank piece of paper, look at like what I want to draw and just like start somewhere on the page. And I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, the current education system is that we only reward perfection and you know a lot of parents or a lot of teachers would punish you for getting lower than a or um, failing in something and so you know at the end of the day people have so many ideas but now they're too scared to put their pen to paper when you don't put that pen to paper literally it's just a blank sheet of paper so it doesn't end up being anything but I think that habit of you know, really like putting my pen to paper, starting the drawing. And along the way, I always screw up somewhere and I always feel like I need to rip this thing out and start again. But then I always think, oh, I've come too far. Like I'm going to finish this. I'm going to work around this (laughs) mistake because I can't erase it either. So I'm just going to, I already put too much detail into it. So I'm just going to work around it. And by the end, the artwork, not only do you, not really see the mistake that I originally thought I had to rip out, but it becomes a really beautiful part of the the piece as well. Um, and so, you mm-hmm. know, that's kind of my, that has been my habit, like my mentality. And I think people can build that. Right. Um, but it was very much like you just start somewhere on the page, see where it goes. If you make a mistake, work around it um, and it will be fine. Yeah. yeah. That's really, I mean, that's a really powerful Uh, exercise even just to think about that and um, to your point like working around the imperfections and I think of uh, the um, kintsugi which is the Japanese art of putting broken pottery pieces together and it's like based on the idea that you embrace flaws and imperfections and you create something that's even more beautiful and stronger as a piece of art you know like and and sometimes people purposely break the pottery so that they can put it back and have these like intricate uh, cracks in it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I love that as well. Um, and I think it's really beautiful. So yeah, I think more people should embrace like um, that things are not going to be perfect. And that's actually like a really beautiful area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So here you are with, you've like, accidentally created a business that's making money. Um, what happens next? <laughs> so I graduate and um, by the time I graduate, I was like, okay, I just, I don't want to actually continue this business because I just really wanted one pair of shoes to begin with. Um, and at this point, my parents, you know, I'm 18 and my parents are like, okay, time to move out. Um, so 
And I had bought a investment property with this money and also paid my tax. So I had no actual liquid funds left. Um, and so I thought, you know what, now I'm interested in business. I'm going to study accounting and work for an accounting firm. So I actually got a job out of high school at uh, this major German international accounting firm. And, you know, it was a cadetship where you work for four years, you sign a contract with them, work for four years, they pay for your school fees as well. And um, you do full-time work, part-time study on rotation for four years. And then you kind of graduate as a senior accountant. And I just didn't really know what I was thinking, but I thought it sounded cool that I could dress up as a, I don't know, dress up with corporate clothes and like go to an office and look cool. You know, I think that's just what I was thinking at the time. Um, but I, yeah, got a job at this accounting firm and I had an existential crisis basically at 18 because I fucking hated it. And, you know, it was just like the, everything that is an antithesis of who I am as a person, literally someone would say, you have to sign in at 8.59 a.m. So you can clock in by, by nine o'clock. And when I was like one minute or two minutes late, and I was just like, oh my gosh, this level of micro managing is like unreal. Um, it was the first time I really understood everything that I didn't never, never wanted to do again. Yeah. So I lasted there for a year, which I'm still very impressed by. But I quit that job after a year. And I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with my life? Like, what am I going to do with my degree either? Um, and at the time... I just felt like, okay, I think I need to get out of Australia. I need to experience what there is outside of this little island bubble. And so I thought, why not go to China and do a summer internship since, you know, Julia Gillard, our, our prime minister at the time, just wrote a white paper that was like, Australia in the Asian century, I'm Chinese, like, let's do this, except one, I have no connections because my parents are artists. So, you know, they can't really introduce me to anybody. And two, I haven't been back to China in 15 years. So I'm like, okay, I don't even know where to get started. So I thought, okay, I'll just apply for ISEC, which is like this global organization, nonprofit that acts as like a student society where um, they organize internships and volunteering experiences for you. And so I go into this interview and I'm like, so I'm interested in interning in China. Like, do you have any placements? And they're like, yeah, we have placements. Um, but do you want to volunteer teaching English in Hungary? And I was like, what? <laughs> Not even like A or B. Um, and I was like, wait, but you have like internship placements in China, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think you should consider volunteering teaching English in Hungary. And I was like, um, do you have any other like options? Like, <laughs> and then two weeks later, they, they emailed me and said, you have been rejected from this process. And I was like, wow, how do you get rejected from a nonprofit organization that is like literally <laughs> global, like made for students? <laughs> Your track record is like rejected from McDonald's. Talk about yeah, I'm like, and then it's just like the, the, the things that are no brainers for people to get in. I just keep getting rejected. <laughs> I was like, screw you. I'm going to go find my own internship in China. Um, and, and then I was like, wait, 
I don't want to cook by myself. <laughs> so I asked my friends, literally all my friends. I was like, I asked my primary school friends, my middle school, high school, uni friends. I was like, hey, do you guys want to come to China with me? I can organize the entire experience. I'll find your internships for you. I'll organize Chinese language learning and cultural studies. You know, we're going to have so much fun. And so 20 of my friends said yes. Wow, that's impressive. I don't know why. Um, and then I was like, crap, <laughs> how am I going to organize these internships? They're all studying really random things. They're not, they're all, someone was studying aeronautics, engineering. Someone was studying law. Someone was studying business. Someone was studying like chemical engineering. I was like, great. What, first of all, which city do I even start with? <laughs> How do I even look for these companies and look for these internships? Like, what did I get myself into? Um, and so at this point, I was like, okay, let's try to figure out how this is going to work. And I go back to that thought, right? Like, how do I leverage? Like, how do I use the least amount of effort for most amount of impact? And so at this point, I thought, okay, what is publicly available? And that's university emails. And they also have the connections with all of the companies in their city. So I reached out, I like basically scraped 400 emails of the Dean of International Education because I knew that their KPI is to get more international students. So I, I emailed them in my shitty Chinese and I say like, hey, we're a group of Australian students. We love your university. Just change the name of the university. We want to come to your university. Here's a list of their profiles. Could you organize internships for them? Plus... Like, you know, we'll do cultural studies, language learning, and I'll pay you a lump sum. And naturally, basically, no one replied except like four, four emails. Um, and one of them worked out. And this <laughs> dean was the dean of this university called Liaoning University in a city called Shenyang. And I was like, where? <laughs> Literally never heard of this city in my life. And I Google mapped this place and it's, literally the border of North Korea. And I was like, okay. <laughs> hey friends, like, want to go to Shenyang? And they're like, Shanghai? And I'm like, nope, Shenyang. And I like Wikipedia this place. And I'm like, you know, Shenyang is the capital of Northeast China. It used to be the capital city before Beijing. So it has the Imperial Palace. It's of great historical importance. And also you don't want to go to a first tier city because you can probably speak English there. You want to go to a second tier city where you can all practice your crappy Chinese so that we can all be fluent by the end of this and actually work with Chinese businesses. When we come back to Australia, you know, Australian businesses really value having Chinese experience because that's where most of our economy comes from. So you can really say that you have worked with like, you know, in business culture in China um, and, and, get a really high paying job. I just said something really random. And also we can go skiing and um, go to Harbin and, and look at the ice lights. And I think my friends all just like, we're here for a good time. They're like, yeah, whatever. Cool, let's go. Yeah, so we go to Shenyang and, <laughs> you know, as a bunch of 18 year olds, um, never, none of us have ever been. So yeah, I'm, I'm uh, glad no one got kidnapped, but... <laughs> 
<laughs> we ended up, you know, had we had a great time and I, and I um, got along really well with the dean and she basically said, hey, we would love to have more of your students come back. Why don't you like what? Like, let's make a contract. Like, what's your business name? And I was like, what? Business name? And so in that two seconds, I was like, okay, I'll just call it Austern, Australia intern, like squashed together as a name. Did not think about it. Um, and so long story short, I just like, that was kind of like what it started with. And I had this um, vision of, you know, I had a couple of problems that I was trying to solve. A lot of it wasn't there in the beginning and I had to kind of iterate and change it as it went along. So the three problems was that the first one was I had no idea at the time what I wanted to do. I just had no experience. So I was like, what, what options are there? Um, and I know a lot of my friends, it makes the exact same thing. Like, how do you know out of high school what you want if you've never experienced anything? And the second thing was like, even though I got a job at this accounting firm, a lot of my friends would say, you know, I would die to be in your position. Like, how do I get experience without experience to begin with? And the third thing was that I was studying accounting and commercial law. And then I saw this article on LinkedIn that was like, JP Morgan designs a software that replaces 360,000 hours of what lawyers do in seconds. I was like, okay, great. That's like my other degree gone, um, automated. <laughs> so I was like, what am I going to do? So I wanted to see how I could at least make myself transferable or like have those transferable skills. So it didn't matter how society or how technology or how the world evolved. I could kind of evolve with that. Mm. Yeah, there's a few things that I want to touch on even in this story. So it's like, I mean, the first thing was how you sold your friends, right? It was and I'm curious if you like when you initially pitched them. Did you talk about it as if it was already a reality? Like, hey, there's this program and it's yeah. like set up. And yeah. How did you know? <laughs> <laughs> you're like, there's this whole thing that's happening already. And like, just let me know if you're in and then I'll give you the details. I, I totally feel called out right now. But yeah, that's exactly <laughs> how it is. <laughs> um, I actually have this uh, reminder on my Apple notes about act as if it's already a reality. Um, yeah. Because I think, yeah, that's, again, that's the thing that holds so many women back. It's like, I don't like the term imposter syndrome, but it's like this, but it's like that feeling of I'm not, you know, like I, I'm not there yet, or I don't, I'm not qualified or I'm, you know, an imposter. Or I'm, I like, I can't do it because it's not real yet. But I think mm -hmm. it's like, it's the reverse engineering of reality. It's like, what's the reality that I want? And mm -hmm. I'm just going to talk about it as if it's already here, see who's on board with that reality. And if I have a critical threshold of people who want the same reality I do, then I'll figure out how to make it happen. So it's like, <laughs> it's like yeah, it's like you, you sell it before you build it. Yeah, because I was like, I mean, if it didn't really occur to me because I was like, well, if it doesn't work out, we just won't go right um but if it works out I was just seeing like how much they would also pay me to organize this mm. so um yeah that's and always how I I see traction it's like do you are you is it is this thing painful enough that you're gonna like throw money at me for this and I was like wow okay it is I guess it's painful enough <laughs> so even even back then did you just say you know like 
did you directly ask them like these 18 year olds, like how much would you pay for this? Or you're like, I have different packages. Well, I just said that um, I roughly calculated how much it would actually cost. And I just um, put a little bit of margin above that. But I mean, since it was my friends, it was basically just at cost. And I wanted to see if um, that, that was something that they faced, which was, you know, experiencing something outside of Australia, being able to work somewhere um, else and gain experience elsewhere. And then, you know, also being able to have that advantage of having business experience in China as well. Mm -hmm. And that would really benefit them um, when they're looking for jobs in Australia as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then also on rejection, because, you know, you've this topic of rejection has come up a couple of times, but as you were getting rejected by these schools, like, is that something you ever took personally or you just kind of said on to the next? Yeah, I, I guess I have really, really thick skin. Um, so I never even thought about it twice. I was like, oh, screw you. <laughs> Laugh. <laughs> And then I was like, okay, I'm going to go anyway. So whether or not you, you want, like you accept me or not, I'm, it never occurred to me that I'm not going to go. I'm still going to go. I just got to mm-hmm. figure out a different way to get there. Where do you think that thick skin comes from? I would say like, um, I guess I just got rejected a lot as a kid. And when I was young, um, it's not like I had an easy start to my life because literally when I was less than, 12 months old, I got like severely, like third, three degree burn all over my arm, um, under my chin. And it was like hot oil that I had. I was like in one of those walkie chair stuff and I was like rolling around and I pulled an electricity line where where grandma was cooking like hot soup. And so I got burned um, very severely. And my my doctor um, at the time was telling my parents that, you know, she's so young I don't think she only has like 5% chance of surviving and I'm here bitches. But anyway, but like growing up though, a lot of people, you know, a lot of kids would be like, Oh, you're such a freak. Like, you know, look at your arm. Um, Why is it like that? It's so funny. It's so weird. And um, I never thought of it. Like I'm insecure about myself. I actually thought it was like my protective armor. And the reason why I thought it was my protective armor was because I was like, wow, you know, this really shows me what kind of person you are. This is awesome. Like this shows me, this doesn't show me about me. This shows me how you are as a person. If you're that shallow, like, I don't want to be friends with you. So um, maybe I got hit in the head wrong, but (laughs) basically (laughs) that was my (laughs) growing up. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That's definitely a big, I think a big advantage, you know, to have something inside of you that like automatically says, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. It's that people can't see what they're missing right in front of them, which I think is like often like a lot of the women that I talk to, and this is one of the effects of good girl brainwashing is like feeling like you've done something wrong or that there's something wrong with you and and fearing that other people won't like you. And so sometimes that fear of rejection prevents you from even taking the first step. Yeah. I guess like I just, uh, maybe it was due to my parents, like how they treated me as well. 
I just felt like um, they never expected me to kind of um, conform to what society wanted. Like they didn't literally when I told them that I was going to go and do accounting, they, they said, why are you doing something so boring? I thought you wanted to do something like journalism or like something interesting. <laughs> but um, they they've always been like, um, you can feel free to do what you want, but here are the consequences. Or like, these are the general principles. Um, and you have to think about how your actions will, you know, have consequences, but they would never just be like, you can't do that. Or like mm-hmm. you, you're not allowed with no reason. Yeah. Got it. So now that you're, you know, in this, this, you, you kind of finish up, get through your, your teens. Um, I'm curious how you got into tech and then ultimately, you know, how that got you to where you are today in terms of crypto and building while Pixies NFT. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the, the business, I ended up um, running it for five years, ended up exiting it and felt like I had kind of like plateaued in my, my growth at that point. And so I joined an edutech startup afterwards um, called New Campus, where it was like kind of building up a new way of lifelong learning using technology. Um, and so I was with that company, that startup for two and a half years, helped it raise Series A. And then eventually I was actually about to join Apple as a head of programs to teach people actually how to be more creative using Apple products. Um, that gig didn't end up working out. I got the offer and then the um, Singapore government basically rejected my visa. So during that time, I was four months unemployed and I started going back into art I did a lot of commissions for people and a lot of people were saying hey you should look into nfts because I think people at that time just sold like 70 million dollars and everyone was talking about it um, in terms of this one particular news and because I was like trying to like publish a coloring in book and then I was trying to do this experiential dining technology art thing everyone was just like okay just um, look into NFTs, even though they didn't know what it was, but they thought I should look into it. <laughs> and for context, what, uh, you know, was this last year? This is last year. This was like, um, yeah, March or April last year. So mm-hmm. I just, min- I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out what this thing is. I minted something that I had drawn whilst I was like sitting on a toilet, <laughs> TMI, but I minted that thing that I had dr- drawn in like three seconds. And um, I paid like $200 in gas fee and I was like, oh God, what did I, <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> and for, for those who don't know, can you tell us what, what minting an NFT means? It's kind of just like kind of in, I guess in a simple way, almost like uploading something onto the blockchain, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then you need to pay like in order for that transaction to happen, there are all these people doing these algorithms. So you need to pay those miners uh, a fee to upload it. Um, so that, that's why you pay the gas fee. Cool. So you, you mint your first NFT and then what happens? And then I start um, looking at different projects. Uh, one of my friends shared me this Twitter um, about cool cats, how 
some famous person, I don't even remember who it was, some famous person changed his profile picture to a cool cat and I, she was like, you should buy it. And so I bought it and it was like 1.5 ETH at the time. And I was like, oh my God, this is so much money. I just paid $4,000 for this cat picture. And then I was like, told my boyfriend, hey, you should buy this cool cat. Because <laughs> I didn't want to buy it by myself. Um, so I made my boyfriend buy it. Then I made like three other friends buy it. And we all had no idea what we were buying. And so um, you were doing the same thing, like selling them on all the, the positive qualities of like why this is really impressive, why the uh, like <laughs> no, value is going like, to go up. <laughs> I had no idea. I literally, this was just like, you should buy this cool cat because apparently this person um, changed his profile picture and it looks cute. And, you know, we'll take this as a learning lesson <laughs> if it doesn't work out. <laughs> Not financial advice. Um, yeah, but I made... I made a couple of people buy with me. And then I was like, oh, you know what? This looks cute. I saw like Robotos, the bought Robotos at 0.09 or whatever it was at the time. And then I saw World of Women. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. Like I, I want to buy it. And one of my friends who's quite not like was already in the NFT space. She was, I was like, are you going to buy this World of Women? Because it was, it had just minted like a few days before. And she was like, I don't recommend that because 90% of the space are men and they're never going to buy something that they don't relate to. That's what she said. And I was like, wow, okay, I'm going to buy three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I like it, whatever. I'm going to buy it. I was like, that is a not something. I just thought her reasoning, I was like, I mean, fair, right? But also, whatever. I'm, yeah. I, I like it, so I'm going to buy it. And that's like succumbing. That's like basically being like, I accept the current reality, which is yeah. you know, the subpar reality, and I'm not going to do anything to, to change it or, or you know, create impact or do, like, do create the reality that I want to see. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't even think I was um, going that deep at the time, but I just really liked it. And <laughs> I, I was like, okay, I don't care that you don't like it. I'm just going to buy it. And literally the next day I had, I had, it was like um, 0.2 or three or whatever. And I listed it at two ETH or 2.5 ETH mm. and I had bought three and literally the next day it sold for that two ETH. Yeah. So you flipped it like right away. I accidentally. I just put it at a random number that I thought was like really hard to reach because it yeah. was only like zero point something the, the day before. And I was like, oh, wow. And that was the moment I was like, Whoa, NFTs. <laughs> that was my real yeah. sale. Wow. So and then at what but <laughs> yeah. So at what point did you start thinking I should create my own NFT project? I guess I never super thought about making my own. I was just um quite heavily because at this at that time I had just started my job at Stripe as well, like all this at the same time. It was kind of crazy a string of these women projects came out and I saw boss beauties and I was like there is no way this is not going to succeed and I told literally everyone about it because what a woman started becoming too expensive I mean it was only at one point something ETH or two ETH but still for a lot of my friends coming who are new they're not going to pay that so I was just telling like boss beauties like I had a lot of conviction from the moment that I saw it before they minted 
Um, and it was because I saw Lisa and her background of, um, you know, I've already run her business for 10 years. I was like, damn, if you can run a business for 10 years, she's not going to give up if there's some little hiccups on the way. So at least I know she's got that tenacity going for her. And then, you know, with the New York Stock Exchange um, being like being the first NFT artwork being listed on the New York Stock Exchange art hall, even before they even launched, I was like, wow, that's some strong, you know, execution potential right there. So I was just telling everyone left, right, center that they should buy Boss Beauties. And I just thought, I just kind of felt like, oh, just, you know, I'll keep it for a few years. Like it, it will get there in the future. And then as I'm buying all these projects, I like started seeing my wallet becoming more and more women project related. And I just saw that there was so much potential with these, um, especially high quality, high execution projects that were just not reflecting in what the market demand was. And even when um, I had met my co-founders in World of Women, they're all mentors of World of Women. And we actually, within the World of Women chat at the time, we had actually discussed, hey, could we potentially fractionalize one of the royalty assets um, and create like an own internal DAO? And it didn't work out. We went to other DAOs to be like, hey, you guys should seriously consider World of Women as a really great potential investment. And no yeah. one was seriously, they were just like, oh, Bode, oh, like CryptoPunks at the height. Um, yeah. or like all these like, you know, random, do- like random animal ones yeah. as well. And, and can you quickly explain what a DAO is? A DAO is like a, a decentralized autonomous organization. I would say it's like very close, like a co-op where you know, typical organizations are centralized where you have people at the top of the pyramid, they're making all decisions um, and the consumer has no say. In this case, a DAO, basically, because it's decentralized, it's where everybody has, through a use of a token, so in my case with WowPixies, your NFT is that token to make votes, to create change and like to influence the direction of your organization. And I think that's really powerful to like co-create something with the community around you. And I think that that comes part also like, you know, what I was talking about earlier, it's like giving yourself less power, giving other people more power, but you can create a lot more impact with that now. Got it. I guess it just kind of got to the point where we wanted to create something where it was more like a less of, I'm going to make my own NFT project where it's focused around the art and, and whatever. But I really wanted something that was about amplifying other projects and, and that aspect of putting more of our money in women's hands. And, you know, a, a bit, a lot of like a big thing that I was saying was that, you know, I have been doing startups my whole life and, I never even thought, considered VC. Um, I bootstrapped. And even when I had talked to investors with my last startup, even with track record, bootstrapped from um, from zero to seven figures, it was still so, I just felt like they underestimated. Like when I talked to VCs, they just underestimated um, me and my co-founder and um, just would offer really 
ridiculous valuations that were so low that I was like, it doesn't even match the revenue that we're making. This is so stupid. And, you know, and then now with my job, I work directly with VCs and accelerators on a daily basis, you know, trying to help build out the startup ecosystem. And what you see is that money is not going to women. And you, you know this too, but is the statistics are so stupidly low, like 2.3% is what HBS um, said that VCs invested in women founders in 2020. I mean, that's not even close to 50%. That's like yeah. a, a tiny proportion. And but, 0.2 to women of color. Just like yeah, egregious. It's just, <laughs> exactly. It's like, what? How is this possible? Right? And But the, the thing is that, you know, there's also study, you know, there's a BCG article um, study done that actually women founders give investors 100% more return than other founders. And I think this comes with a lot of things, right? Because it's the fact that you can't, the fact that you can't even get funding to begin with, you have to think about how you're going to keep, how you're going to actually be sustainable as a business without this funding. How are you going to be resilient when things are not going to go well? Like you have to really understand your vision. You really have to be passionate about your why. So I think women go through a lot more hurdles in in even getting that far. So when I look at these projects in the NFT space, I kind of see the same thing. I'm like, when I look at these founders, they're so resilient, they're so innovative, and it doesn't matter if the floor price is up and down. I think a lot of projects get demotivated a lot after the initial mint phase, they take all the money and then they're like, okay, it's kind of dying. So I'm just going to quit. And um, I think just kind of seeing the natural hurdles that women go through, they, one, are extremely undervalued, but two, you know, very much going to last, they're much more likely to be thinking about a long-term vision over a short-term gain um, because they just have so many more hurdles that they have to go through. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the thesis that was building around Wow Pixies, which was starting with Wow. It's already under like so. It's still only worth seven ETH right now. Mm-hmm. When and so after- for for context, you know, Wow is World of Women, and seven ETH at this point is well, what's the price of Ethereum today? Like um, twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean, for maybe, for one yeah. World of Women. Yeah, which sounds like a lot, right? Which it is a lot, but in comparison to projects that have been around this long that have you know it's listed on Christie's it has partnerships with like literally the most amazing brands in the world it's done it's executed so magnificently um over this period the comparable nft projects are all around like 50 to 100 ETH floor now all male-led projects and all male-led and i think that you know it is true that because there are not enough women in the space, there's just not enough demand for these projects, and which is why it's so important to onboard more women into Web3 because we can really make an impact on where that money goes to and we can really mm-hmm. change that narrative. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that's that's a big thing is just like bringing like that education in that safe space. And I think, you know, both of us have seen how, 
incredibly collaborative. Uh, the Web3 space, the NFT space is for women. But I think, yeah, there's just some really basic things like the jargon, right? Even setting up your wallet securely, buying your first crypto, like all of that is still like significant hurdles, especially if, you know, that it, it looks like a very, it looks and still feels like a very male dominated space if you're looking in from the outside. Yes, absolutely. But I think the beauty of NFTs, at least, is that even if women were not particularly attracted to, you know, buying and selling um, like, you know, DeFi components, tokens, um, that kind of area, at least NFTs are a very visual thing. And I think that it's something relatable that at least can help bridge that understanding into the whole Web3 space. Yeah, I think. Yeah, if we have better tools, but um, yeah, at least that's what attracted me in the first. I was like, oh, pretty pictures. Let me see what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, I, I discovered you guys like pretty early on. I was on Twitter and I think it was, it was right around the time that um, I was looking at Alpha Girls, like Rebel Society, Women Rise, like it was all happening at the same time. And then mm-hmm. um, I like Twitter recommended Wow Pixies. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. It's like it's like so meta because you, you're, you guys are an NFT investing in other female led NFT projects. And I yeah. was like and and actually your project is what gave me that light bulb moment of the power of what NFTs can do. Because I, to your point of like venture capital funding, I literally, that's when the light bulb clicked on. And I was like, this is going to completely disrupt the way funding flows towards female-led projects. Because I think a lot of women or people look at NFT projects and they're like, oh, it's just a JPEG. You know, like I don't get it. But underneath it, it's like women-led projects have longer roadmaps. They're literally building a business. And it's basically like a a replacement of the seed round of funding without having to go into these horrible VC meetings where you get rejected and you get condescended. And um, but you're actually raising that money from a community. And then the community members who are buying the NFTs are effectively your investors who now have equity in your company. But instead of what happens when you're an angel investor and it's like you're investing and it's kind of a black hole, right? Cause you still don't see returns for five to 10 years. You don't really know who the other investors are. And here you're like, I'm immediately, I know like thousands of other women who or men who are investing in this project and there's a community. And so, yeah, yeah. like I really, when I saw the messaging um, for wild pixies, I was like, I really love this. I want to get in early. And so, um, yeah. So I really love what you guys are doing. You were like (laughs) one of the first few people. (laughs) I I feel like that was like posting about it. Really appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, this girl is great. She's like posting on Instagram. I'm going to repost her Instagram post. Yeah, I told like a few friends who were not yet in the crypto space. I'm like, you should, you should invest in this. And they're like, I don't get it. Like, (laughs) and I was like, no, no, no. Yeah, I was kind of doing like what you were doing. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so I just, I thought that was really cool. And, um, and then you like put the DAO together really quickly to start putting those uh, votes into practice, right? So the community, um, the NFT holders are able to vote on projects that, 
the collective invests in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, I think the first thing that we wanted to do was to buy that royalty world of women so that we could have, you know, we could tie our success to world of women's success because I knew that, you know, even if the primary sales went well, we still have to rely on secondary sales and to kind of push us through those months, we wanted to buy a royalty world of women, basically 19 NFTs that the world of women collection has with a coin necklace, coin earrings. And they take, these 19 holders take 2% of their monthly transactions and they have much bigger volume. So we wanted to just like hedge that by having, you know, using our prime portion of our primary sales to buy that NFT, which we bought for 135 ETH. And I think, you know, that sounds like a big number, but the next two people that bought another royalty water woman, literally it was double that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in our first month, we got back 23 ETH in royalties. So, yes. in so the you're next, already seeing a return. Yeah. So we basically, you know, it will pay itself off in the next half of half the year and mm-hmm. we still can sell it as an NFT. Um, so I thought that was a really no brainer. Um, so that we could have more money to invest in more women projects. <laughs> yeah, cool. What would you say are some of the lessons, like top lessons you've learned in building this first NFT project, like things maybe that you didn't expect? I guess I didn't expect um, a lot of things. The first was like Twitter. I, I guess like, first of all, marketing in this space is so different to Web2 marketing because because now you have this community that has a vested interest in you. I just, I, I thought the timeline would be a lot longer, but actually it minted out in four days, right? But I thought it was going to take like a whole month to mint out. And so when it minted out in four days, I was like, oh crap, like <laughs> it's already starting like right now. Um, and I was like, oh, do I incorporate? Oh shit, there's all these legal issues. Oh, do I find a lawyer? Um, and so it took me like three weeks to actually find a really great lawyer. And that already feels like, forever um and then it's like how does this DAO tie to an incorporated company um Mm -hmm. and how do we not become a security and how this is like so many things going and then you're trying to like organize the community make sure that there's marketing make sure that you know you're communicating clearly um and then also hold weekly I've been holding three times weekly Twitter spaces and my manager turned up to one and I was like, Oh, Hey, (laughs) (laughs) I I promise I'm doing work. (laughs) I promise I'm still doing my job. Um, No, but he's super supportive and he's been like, you know, presenting wow pixies at our our bi-weekly sales um, APAC meetings. (laughs) And I was like, Oh wow. That's really nice. But also like, stop stalking me. (laughs) But um, yeah, it's just like a lot of a lot of things just happening. I feel like, you know, I wake up, I'm doing Wow Pixies, I'm then doing my day job, and then I'm doing more Wow Pixies, and then I sleep. And um, but it's been amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And you guys are doing some really awesome things. Uh, going into this next phase of your roadmap, what are you most excited for? I'm super excited about our next roadmap. I did want to make something that was a bit different from typical 
the kind of normal NFT roadmap where it tends to be kind of like paint an idealistic picture that could probably not happen in like three years. And I just wanted to make something that was concrete, but also could create a lot of impact for our holders. So I guess the first thing I'm really excited about is that I wanted to get more of our DAO involved in decision-making and also, you know, action-making. Like everyone has so many ideas. Um, I'm sure you've seen in the Discord, but there's a lot of really, really smart people, a lot of lawyers too. I think we just attracted all of Web3 lawyers and we have a lot of like people in VCs and people in um, all these different industries who can really contribute their skills and who want to build a career in Web3. So I want to be able to give them that opportunity to do that. And we will be exploring ways where we can you know, make, you know, whether it's DeFi options, like um, staking or whatever it is to create some returns so that we could pay our contributors. But this is a really great way for them to actually be like, I, without having to like found their own project, they can be like, oh, I was a project lead for this particular area for Wow Pixies. Um, And we're also going to be minting their contribution on the blockchain using this cool tool called proof mm, and awesome. that's a way yeah people can see yeah. like it's been verified by this project that you have contributed this and so very I cool. think that's, that's very cool yeah awesome so you've had quite the journey and so I've loved hearing about you know your artist ruse to tech to web3 space um very excited for the future of wild pixies final question for you what does it mean to you to be a bad bitch? I think for me, being a bad bitch is just being unapologetically yourself and, and being able to fulfill like what you are here on earth to do. Um, and I'm very unapologetically, very shameless when it comes to like reaching out to people, um, partnering with people. And I guess I just don't really care as much like you know if if what people think about that kind of shamelessness but I think you can be a bad bitch and you know still be a polite person um but you should be independent you should be yourself and not apologize for like who you are awesome well Lily it was such a pleasure talking to you and we love having you in the bad bitch empire thank you <laughs> Me too. It was so fun. <laughs> Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this episode, take a screenshot, tag me at Lisa Carmen Wang, and make sure you check out thebadbitchempire.com for events, courses, crypto, and other cool shit. Thanks for tuning in to The Bad Bitch Empire. <laughs>